Nanda, good afternoon and welcome to this session on access ethics and documenting the truth. I'm really pleased that we've got a great panel here today. On my left here, Nicole Kleeman, who founded Firecrest Films more than a decade ago, has produced and executive produced numerous documentaries and current affairs programmes for a range of broadcasters and many of them on challenging subject matter. Last year, for instance, one of her team went undercover to film what happens inside one of Facebook's moderation units. Callum McRae is a filmmaker and journalist and writer who co-founded Outsider Television in 1993. He has filmed and reported around the world, often focusing on human rights and injustice. And his most recent feature is The Bally Murphy Precedent, which aired on Channel 4 last year. And that's the connection between him and our third panelist, Guion Owen. He was the producer of the Bally Murphy film. His company, Owen Media, was set up in 2014 to develop, produce, and source funding for films in a range of genre. So we've got lots to talk about. We'd better get started. I wanted to start by asking each of you very briefly to share with us a particular dilemma that you're currently dealing with or that you've recently dealt with in relation to making this kind of film. Uh, we've got, we had two programmes on air this week. Uh, we had a Channel 4 film on Monday and a BBC Scotland film on last night, both of which were incredibly complex. The, the Monday's film, we went undercover in America's biggest chicken processor in Texas to show the reality of chlorinated chicken, uh, which, as you can imagine, in the, undercover filming in America in a completely different legal environment, sending someone into work somewhere where you know is toxic and unpleasant, and having to look after them as well. Uh, that was a very complex program. And last night was the first broadcast of a three-part series that we've been making for BBC Scotland for nearly two years, where we've been following uh, detectives in, in Glasgow investigating murder. So not only do you have to start filming many, many different cases because you don't know what's going to be resolved, what's going to go through the courts, but you've got the victims to deal with as well. No doubt we'll be coming back to some of that later. Callum, what's your recent um, dilemma? Well, it's uh, uh, the, the kind of leads, leads on to what we're going to be talking about a bit later, but uh, certainly one of the, um, in terms of access and, and your responsibilities to your contributors, when we were making the Balamurphy precedent, um, we spent sort of four years uh, trying to make it, trying to get the funding, um, uh, initially try, uh, convincing the, the families and the relatives that they should trust me. Um, uh, and then, of course, once we've kind of done that, then, the, the, then immediately had this problem of the, what the film is going to have to show is the massacre of their, uh, of their loved ones. You know, we're going to have to show exactly what happened when their mother or their father or their brother how they were killed by the British and how they died and all the rest of it. Um, and so that was a, that kind of posed a real problem in terms of how do you treat that. Um, you don't want to do kind of, it, it has to be informative, it has to get over the horror of what happened uh, and, and show forensically what happened. But it has to also be something that they could bear to watch because, you know, you can't lead them into something like that and then confront them with something like that, especially given that I'd made it clear to them that I wasn't going to show them the film, they had to trust me, I wasn't going to show the film until it was it was done. So that led to, actually in the end, came up with what I think and, and believe is actually a very effective creative solution. But it was, that was quite an issue, trying to work out how we're going to do that. I mean, I, I probably haven't got time to go into how mm. we did it just now. But, but. 
I mean, that, that phrase, can bear to watch, is, is something I think we'll come back to because we're talking about a range of different people. Mm. We're talking about contributors, we're talking about families of people who've died, but we're also talking about the audience. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, there's, there's a whole range of things there. Guion, can I come and ask to you? Yeah, we're working, well, we're developing a um, uh, documentary, um, the centre point of which is a, you know, quite a horrific incident during a sporting event, um, which I don't think has been seen on television in the UK. Um, you know, obviously these things are available on the web. Um, but it's finding that balance between showing, you know, giving a sense of the horror of what happened and then maintaining that, you know, thinking what, through what the audience actually needs to see to understand what happened. Um, without, you know, crossing that line, which you know, which just crosses into something that you know, it's, it's sensationalist or gratuitous in what they see on screen, and it's a very, very difficult one because um, I think you know, the sort of feature documentary genre offers you slightly more scope and uh, latitude there than you know, pure television because you know, because the various mediums is going to be seen. Um, and um, but, 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 but it's working out exactly because we, we're going to try and depict this in, in you know, in some form of CGI, well, using archive and CGI, and, and um, but it's uh, yeah, it's working out, um, you, you, you know, showing the audience, you know, the maximum effect of what happened without crossing that line, and it's a very very difficult mm. line to to know where it sits, you know. Indeed. We'll be coming back to that too. I want to uh, move on to talk a bit about uh, gaining access, gaining cons consent, which is obviously a rather key part of getting a documentary off the ground in the first place. Um, and if we could line up clip one, which is from a, a series that you've made, can you just tell us briefly what, what that was? So this is from a series you made for Channel 4 that was on air in November 2017 called Life is Behind Bars which it was a two-part series for Channel 4 documentaries about what it's like to serve a life sentence with access to a number of prisons in Scotland. Um, and it won the Scottish BAFTA award last year. Okay, let's watch the clip. That's quite a clip. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you negotiated? Obviously, you had to get into a prison, so you had a kind of corporate organizational access, but you then had to negotiate with contributors. I mean, tell us a bit about that process. Well, it was interesting. So I come from an investigative journalism background. I came up through Panorama at Newsnight, and I always just assumed that I could not get access to institutions like that because I'd made so many films investigating institutions like that. But it was, it was really obvious very, very quickly that the Scottish Prison Service really respected the background of rigour that we came from, and they found that incredibly reassuring. And once they realized that we weren't going to do a film that was doing them over, they were really interested in showing what went on behind bars in prison, particularly with long-term prisoners. That, most of that film was filmed in the maximum security prison in Scotland, HMP Shots, which hadn't been filmed in before. And you know, there's, a, there's a purpose in criminal justice to showing taxpayers what happens to people after they get a life sentence and the kind of curtain comes down. And because we're too liberal to really believe in capital punishment, but we just want people to disappear. We don't want to know what happens mm. to them. And we wanted to show what happens to them. What, what was interesting was that, actually, when you go into a prison day after day, in terms of actuality, it's not very interesting. It, it's a kind of warehouse, and exactly the same thing happens every day. 
but was, what was really interesting in the prison was the way that people justified constantly to themselves about why they were there. And because they just sit there talking to themselves or talking to each other, nobody really puts them on the spot about what they're doing. And they're, they're incredibly indulged. You know, all of their, their needs are all met in the prison. And they were incredibly indulged. And the, the film shifted quite a bit when we were making it. And it became much more of, of the director, whose voice you hear there, trying to put them on the spot yeah. and ask them difficult questions. The difficulty in making that film, one of the many difficulties in making that film, was that the Scottish Prison Service wouldn't, for data protection reasons, give us the victims next of kin names and addresses. And we knew that we had a duty to anybody who might be flicking channels and see the man who killed their daughter or their mother pop up on screen, that we had to tell them before broadcast why we'd made the film, what the film was, and what people were saying about the crime that they would never have heard mm. before. And, and that, again, that's why being investigative journalist was really useful to us, because you had to go back to very old-fashioned techniques of, of combing death certificates, the electoral roll, mm. uh, and in cases where we couldn't be certain that that was where people lived and we could send them a letter registered post, we had to turn up on the door. And in fact, the, the, the man who was killed, he's talking about in that clip, uh, we, we, we door-knocked two addresses in Glasgow. And the second address, uh, there was nobody there. And we asked the neighbor where he was. It was the father of the victim. And she said he passed away three weeks before. But she told us where his, his surviving sons lived. So then we had to go and knock the sons up, knowing they'd just lost their father, to tell them that the, the man who killed the brother is going to be on television talking about this. But I think people really appreciated us taking the effort. And because you could explain, this is exactly what he says. He's put on the spot. He's asked to justify it. And if you believe in the film that you're making and you believe in the reasons why you're making it, you should be able to convey that to all of the contributors and mm. all of the people affected by it and, and to your audience. So what about him and, and people, the, the contributors like him, the lifers themselves? What did you tell them was involved in making the program? And were they resistant to the idea of being in it? I mean, there are 400 inmates at HMP Shots, and there was a tiny handful that would talk to us. And in fact, there were a lot of people who did say they wanted to be in it, and then word would quickly go around the jail, and then they would tell you they didn't want to be in it. Um, I mean, a, a lot of them are involved in organized crime, people who are in there, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. And that was, that was an extra layer of complication that we didn't want to get into. Um, a lot of them wanted to be in it, but then, but then when they thought about what their families and the victims would see, they weren't sure. But then when they realized that actually it could have a positive outcome, that's why he wanted to do it. He'd, he'd never talked about it. He's, he's 16 years into his sentence. Mm. Um, and when he was reassured that we would handle the victim very sensitively and the victim's family, then he felt more comfortable about talking. Callum. Um, Talk to us a bit about your experience of gaining consent. I mean, Bally Murphy, obviously, an example of people who had been through immense trauma, but a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And you're bringing it, I mean, obviously, the story is bringing itself up again because of the inquest and so on. But how far do you need to explain to people what might happen as a result of being on your, your programme? I think Ballon Murphy, there were less issues in terms of because the families had been through that process when, when they first lost their loved ones, it was in the middle of a war. Um, uh, in, in reality, it wasn't officially acknowledged as a war, but that's what it was. And 
they all, the, 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 their trauma was the first 20 years when they had to keep their heads down. And you know, if, if, if your um, loved one is accused of being a member of the IRA, you don't stand up and shout about it because then you'll be targeted um, by the British. Um, so there was that very much, that's what they, that was their trauma. And so when actually they had begun to get together and talk about it, then, and I went and said, look, I want to make this film. So my problem with them actually was rather the reverse. It was like, I probably won't be able to make this film. And I said, they, they will tell you now, I mean, they're all good friends now, but um, they'll tell you how often I used to lead on and say, look, this probably isn't going to happen. This probably won't happen. You know, don't get excited about it. Um, and that was actually, in a way, that was, in that situation, that was my big responsibility, was to, to, to warn them it might not happen. But uh, in terms of them trusting me, they did have to trust me. And in a way, some ways, I suppose it's easier, I mean, it's a very dismal thing to say, but it's easier when you've made a few films and you've got a, a sort of track record and people can, you can point people to what you've done. Uh, and, you know, you can say, this is how I do things. You can, you, you know, I'm not going to abuse you and I'm not going to exploit you and I'm, I want to tell you a story. Because actually, the film I'm making is, is, is their story, it's not my story. Um, and they had to trust that I would do that and represent it well. And funnily enough, what I did do, though, as I mentioned earlier, what I did do is I said, I'm not going to show you the film um, in, 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 while it's being made. Um, I have to be, you, you have to say you trust me or you don't trust me. And then I will make the film and then I will show you the film afterwards. I, the, they were the first people to show that. We actually showed the film. The very first screening of the film was in, in the church in, in Ballymurphy Estate, around where the killings happened. Uh, <coughs> and we had uh, 120 relatives packed into the church hall. Uh, and that was, uh, I think, probably the most nerve-wracking screening I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> I stood at the back, and actually, as the film ended, I realized that I, I could hardly move because I'd been standing so stiffly at the back in, 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 uh, in fear of the reaction. But, uh, and in fact, there was this kind of moment of silence and everybody stood up. And, uh, mm. So, yeah, I, I think that was a slightly different thing. I mean, mm. there have been other situations where you really are trying to convince people who've been through a horrible trauma that actually this could help, but also that it might not help. And, and, and that kind of honesty is incredibly important. I think probably Bally Murphy is not such an example of that. It's slightly different. I mean, we're going to see um, a, a clip later on from a, a film you made about Sri Lanka. Uh, I'm interested, though, in whether you think we as a, as a species, documentary makers, uh, journalists, producers, perhaps sometimes don't operate in the same way in, in war zones, in places where there is a dictatorship. Do you, do, do you think that we're consistent in the way we navigate informed consent, whether it's a domestic story or a foreign story? Um, in some ways, the, the situations are different. I mean, it's, 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 it's a kind of old truism, but it's, uh, like truisms, it's true, um, which is that you know, very often when you're in a war zone uh, or you're in a situation where there's an incredibly repressive regime and you're filming, it, 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 you're not the one who's at risk, it's them. Uh, and, and you have to remind yourself that, and you have to remind them that, and also the other people are at risk of your fixes. Um, so in a sense, you're the one who's, who's you know, walking in a relatively safe bubble, actually, unless something dreadful happens. You know, you're, 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 you're not going to cope with the consequences. So consent in that situation isn't, isn't just a matter of trauma. And in many cases, they're all traumatized anyway, so you're not significantly going to increase their trauma by making the film. What you are doing is putting them at, at, at risk, and that sense of... That's a different kind of sense of responsibility. It's a different responsibility, incredibly important one, mm -hmm. uh, but different in a way. 
Let's see the, um, the trailer for Bally Murphy. This is a film that was, was commissioned by Channel 4, so there's been a one-hour version, but there's also a feature-length version. Yeah. It's not, that doesn't often happen after playing a clip. Um, Guion, as producer of, of yeah. that, um, were there any particular kind of ethical, legal challenges that you had to navigate with? Well, uh, I think there were twice or three times that Channel 4 asked for as for various changes to be made. Um, um, you know, in terms of ethics, I think it was, you know, that production was led, you know, very largely led by Callum in fairness, who had, you know, spent a lot of time dealing with the families uh, before, uh, before I joined the project. And I think, um, you know, it stands as a testimony to Callum's ability as a journalist and as a filmmaker that the families were prepared to trust him. Um, uh, just, just, just jump back to what Nicole has said. Said there about um, uh, you know the, the requirement to tell the families of victims. I was quite interested in what you said there because um, about a year ago I dealt with a not dissimilar situation to that, um, where a family um, of a victim of an incident, probably most of the people here have heard of, um, and. Although the, the, the pitch we made, and I think we made the pitch to SVC and to the BBC, and they were both interested, um, the, we found out that, that a current affairs programme had been made about the same issue, um, and a, a family had lost their son in, you know, in, in what remains you know, very controversial and, um, and uh, unexplained circumstances to this day. Um, and, you know, reported certainly nationally in the UK when it happened, and I'm sure globally. And the current affairs reporter had not told uh, the parents of um, when this programme had gone out, and this programme had gone out about four or five years previously. And they switched on the television mm. um, just to find, um, you know, just to uh, see the programme about their son, and... and um, uh, you know, they refused blankly to take... Yeah, I mean, the pitch we made wasn't completely based on, you know, wasn't completely dependent on getting the parents to take part. Um, but I think, it, you know, it changed the film, and in the end we didn't feel that we could make the film that we wanted to without the parents' consent and their involvement. Um, but they had uh, switched the television on and just seen the programme, mm. and they simply hadn't been told. And I was actually fascinated to hear about... Um, mm. uh, you know the the lengths you went to to find um, the families of the victims, um, because uh, you know I think that was a shocking experience I had mm. there. You know the the you know um, and the broadcaster that he worked for hadn't gone to um, broadcaster that the reporter um, who made the um, kind of affairs program hadn't gone to the lengths mm. to tell the family when the program was being broadcast. Um, anyway, um, yeah, Bally Murphy. Uh, yeah, the, the, there were ethical issues there. I mean, I think, you know, I think we spoke through how we were depicting the, you know, the the deaths quite, you know, quite um, quite thoroughly beforehand. Um, and do, do, you, do you get different issues coming up when people, other other broadcasters, start buying the program? They they respond. To we, we didn't have on Bally Murphy specifically because um, there was Channel Four and there was RT who came. Uh, ultimately, RT came in as a pre-sale, um, and then there was the film agency and the BAI, and I think they all bought. You know, thankfully, they all bought into the one vision at the beginning, and that was 
I think you know it would have made our lives terribly, terribly difficult if we yeah. had to. You know, I think there were eight funders and the you know, financiers in the end between it's birth a lot of and Pulitzer. An <laughs> yeah, it would have. You know, if, if you know, thankfully that, that wasn't eight yeah. broadcasters. It was two broadcasters. But um, um, and and RT. You know, although you know the initial um, involvement was as a commission alongside Channel Four, uh, it dropped back to a pre-sale in the end. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, but had we been you know been dealing with three or four broadcasters with different requirements there. Yeah. I think we would have, you know, it would have been terribly struggled there, um, beyond what we actually had. And I know, Callum, uh, you've got you've got a lot to say. Well, I'm sure all of you have about the the impartiality and balance issue, which is where you get to when you're getting to this stage in a production, um, and it's kind of built into the guidelines of most of the broadcasters you're working for. How how difficult is that? For you, and how, do you have a lot of arguments with, with um, commissioners about what that means? To be honest, I, with Banner Murphy, um, I didn't um, ha have a lot of arguments because actually there was an acceptance by Channel 4, I, you know, which, for which I'm extremely grateful, uh, uh, that, um, that what we were doing um, was that we were not going to make, it was from the very start, we're not going to make an on the one hand, on the other hand film. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, we're going to work out, we're going to investigate incredibly thoroughly, we're going to establish exactly what happened, and then we're going to say that's what happened. And if the evidence set suggests overwhelmingly, and that's been borne out actually, interestingly, very much by the inquest, which has been going on since the film was made, um, that, it, that, 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 that most, if not all, of those people um, were um, shot by the British Army, by the Parachute Regiment, the same regiment who went on to do Bloody Sunday six months later, and that, um, uh, and that all of them were unarmed and all of them were innocent, and that's what we're going to say. And we're not going to, you know, we're going to tell the truth. And, and uh, I'm not going to make a film which is impartial uh, between the truth and lies. And so it's, it's very straightforward. And, and I know there have been arguments, people have been concerned, and you know, one hears rumours from, from juries and things, um, they're always just a bit, bit, bit not, not sure about the balance, you know. And my argument is very, very clear, is that for 47 years, there has been a lie told. And I, you know, lawyers all start fidgeting in the seats when you use that word. But, you know, there have been lies told about what happened. The official narrative of what happened uh, in the Ballon-Murphy massacre is untrue. Uh, and so for 47 years, but it's been 47 years, it's been largely unchallenged. So um, as far as I'm concerned, my film wasn't unbalanced. My film was the balance. Uh, and in that, I can, you know, claim to be positively Rethian in, in, in our aim. <laughs> um, uh, so, and, and that whole, I mean, the whole argument of impartiality is, a, I, I find it really problematic because, um, basically, you know, if you are in an unequal, in an unequal world, um, if you are balanced between the haves and the have-nots, if you, you know, then, then you are uh, not balanced and impartial and neutral you are preventing change to injustice. And if you prevent change to injustice, <coughs> excuse me, that doesn't make you impartial, that makes you a reactionary. Um, and impartiality is a, it's a, I mean, it's a good word, and, and, and you, uh, I, I prefer, because of the way impartiality is so misused, and I know this gets me into trouble and makes, me a bit, makes people in the BBC a bit nervous particularly, um, but it's misused, it's not a bad word, it's a, it's a misused word very often to cover up at best um, shoddy journalism uh, 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 and at worst sort of 
you know, open, um, reactionary uh, uh, sort of uh, journalism. So, so. Um, but but, yeah. but it, it's kind of it's also about making the program as good as possible, and and uh, so balance is also about making sure the audience understands what the official narrative was oh, and why it was the way it was. So for me, and I'd, I'd be interesting to know what you think about this, Nicole, it's, it's not about kind of balancing truth with lies. It is about saying I need people to understand what happened and why it happened and why the official version is this. If I, if I could just very briefly come back. I mean, I don't sort of say we shouldn't use the word impartial. What I say is that there's a better way yeah. of doing it, a better way of describing it. And I think the obligation, uh, you have to be truthful and accurate, which are, are, are related but not exactly the same, and fair. And of those, fair is probably the most important. Mm. If you're not fair, then you are, you are, you know, you're a dreadful journalist. Uh, and also, if you, if you are sort of, I mean, there's also arguments about what is a campaigning journalist, you know, and, and I've had in these arguments because people have, you know, when people have denied, like the Sri Lanka film particularly, denied its truth and said it's all lies, you know, then I will defend that. And I ended up spending four years defending that film. And people said, are you a campaigner or a journalist? And I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a journalist defending my story. And if that makes me a campaigner, uh, you know, then that's fine. But the interesting thing that journalists and campaigners um, should have in common is that if you are trying to make your point or establish your truth by misrepresenting the people who disagree with you or the people on the other side, then you are both a rubbish journalist and a rubbish campaigner because you're not going to win your campaign mm. if you misrepresent mm. the opposition, as it were. So your obligation to be truthful, to be accurate, and to be fair is, is paramount because without that, you're not a journalist. Yeah, Nicole? It's, it's about fairness. It is about fairness. That's the key thing. And I think you have to recognise that often you come to an issue with an agenda yourself, which is why you're interested in it. Uh, but you have to establish all the time that you're being, you're being fair to all parties, and that's how you get at the truth. Mm. Let's move on uh, to our responsibilities to the people who work for us. Um, I'm going to show a clip in a minute, uh, the, the Facebook clip. Um, but, uh, Nicole, I know, I know you, you and your company are always very exercised about the fact that you're often hiring very young, very ambitious, very keen people to do quite difficult stuff that's yes. risky to them. So, I mean, a lot of what we do, the, the murder series we had on last night, um, the undercover in, in America we had on on, on Monday, uh, the prison series, the, the very harrowing topics... Um, you're asking people to spend huge amounts of time listening to very difficult stories and, and following very difficult events, or you're asking them to work undercover. So we've got a real duty to support our staff and, and people who are working on our projects. The duty of care that we have to contributors also extends to, to the people who are working on them. Mm. And it's particularly true with undercover because, because of Google and the internet now, inevitably people who do undercover have limited experience, so you can't look them up, or they've got a very common name. <laughs> There's a woman in our <laughs> office called Emma Stewart who does all our undercover because she's called Emma Stewart. <laughs> but when she's busy, we have to get other people. <laughs> and um, I shouldn't have said that actually now. Whenever she, she's, she's, she's going to find a job, you'll have to But quite often, people who, who come in to do undercover. No, it was a joke. Um, <laughs> They think that if they do an undercover job, that's a way to get in, into into television. And you, you have to 
really explain to them that this is only going to get you so far. It, you, know, you, you might get a foot in the door. It's not going to get you into being a fantastic PD. And we need you to do it for very different reasons. You really need to examine the motives of people who, who, who come in to do in undercover, even though we want them to do it. Um, so the clip that we're going to show is from a film that we made last year where we went undercover inside Facebook's European Moderation Centre, which is in Dublin. And the guy who worked there worked there for two months for us. Um, and I mean, I've, I've done undercover years ago, but like one day at a time, and it's incredibly stressful. But to, to go and take a job, to make colleagues, to have friends at work, knowing that all the time you're filming them and recording everything that they say and do, is a really stressful and just psychologically difficult way to live your life. So you've got one level of pressure, which is you're deceiving all these people that you're going into work with every day who think you, they're your, your colleague and friend. Secondly, you've got the pressure of you're wearing filming equipment. Everything that you say and do is being recorded and could be sent to Ofcom. You're also worried, you know, have you, have you, got, have you changed your batteries? You know, are you still recording? Have you got problems? And the then on top of that, you've got the journalism, that everything that you're filming, you've got to think, am I justified in filming this? If somebody says something, what's the line of questioning to bottom out further evidence? Where's this story going? And particularly in a, in, in a long-term job when you're doing that, mm. uh, to make sure that you're always on top of the story all the time. So it was a team of two, the, the undercover guy and his producer, who's a woman called Kerry Isfrin, who was in Dublin for two months with him. And every night he would come home with his rushes, and every day she would watch his rushes while he was at work and transcribe them and text him and phone him while he was at work and say, now ask this, now follow this up. So the, the pressure that you're under... So he was in there for seven weeks, and he, he, he phoned me and said he couldn't go in anymore. Uh, he couldn't do another day. And I phoned the channel and said, I'm going to have to pull him out. And they said, but we need all these answers. Can you not just do one more day or one more week? And it's that kind of balance of the duty of care that you owe somebody who you know, is a really young and inexperienced guy mm. who's doing a power of work, a really extraordinary piece of work that he's not really that qualified to do, but none of us can do. Um, so anyway, the clip that we're going to show throws up a whole host of other compliance issues. So one of the things we were looking at at Facebook is what they allow to be shown that we as broadcast, as, as television makers, cannot show. Um, so if you're making a film about what can't be shown, what can you show of what can't be shown? So this is a clip of our undercover guy moderating a complaint about a, a film that comes up on Facebook of, of some schoolgirls fighting. And you then see discussion with the moderators where they're trying to work out, should it be allowed to stay on the site? And what we wanted to show was the human impact of this clip being on the site. And so we wanted to try and find the, 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 the girl who's being beaten up. And in fact, she wouldn't do, her, her mother does an interview. And again, the information that we got from working at Facebook about who, that girl's name, we could not use in order to find her mother. We had to go and find it another way so that we couldn't be accused by Facebook of accessing and, and stealing yeah. the information. Okay, let's play the clip. Well, you've certainly explained, I, I think, watching that clip and the, some of the considerations you went through. How is the guy who shot it now? What's he doing? Uh, he's working in television as a researcher. Yeah. Uh, and we got him, I, I got him on a Channel 4 camera course when he came out. Uh, in fact, he's coming up here next week, because this is nominated for an RTS Scotland Award. 
Uh, no, he's fine. I mean, I think he just had to go off. He made a football documentary. Had to go off and do something completely different. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? That kind of thing about it, it, there is a sort of youth versus older and wiser and perhaps more experienced heads, and maybe you get to a certain. You you were like that young yes. man at some point, but you get to a certain point where you think the story isn't worth this person being damaged by. It. Yeah. No, definitely, and you know, and also you you think. I've probably got enough material. It's that kind of feeling when, you know, when you're more inexperienced, you think, I'll just keep on filming yeah. until I yeah. get it. I, I mean, I think so what, what you're saying, I, mean, I remember I had somebody undercover for about two months in a bank. Um, in a bank? In a bank. Mm. Um, and the, 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 it's what you said, the emotional trauma of lying to people who you're getting on with. And the thing is that you, know, it's, you have to be like a kind of spy. Mm. Um, and you have to have the mentality of a spy. But of course, spies are notoriously psychotic and weird. Uh, and we can't <laughs> afford to employ notoriously psychotic, weird people. We have to support people who are really well-adjusted and considerate and thoughtful and, and, and aware of their duty of care themselves. And, of course, what you're doing is you're putting them under absolutely huge stress. And the other thing is that when they come out as well, is that I think all too often um, the TV industry, we've had somebody undercover and they come out and then they're just sent off, you know. And actually, I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced, well, I know that people have gone through really, really difficult emotional uh, periods after being undercover. It's, it's a, it's a mm. huge strain, and as you say, it's young, inexperienced people who have to do it by definition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like us to play two clips now. Um, they are both, in different ways, extremely disturbing. should warn you of that. Um, but I'm playing them because I, I think they raise issues about how we portray the stories that we've gathered um, in terms of both the effect on the audience, but the effect on the contributors effect on their victims. So two clips, one after the other, quite a hard watch. So the first clip was No Fire Zone um, about Sri Lanka, and the second one was from your Lifers series. Um, Callum, can I ask you specifically, I mean, in the trailer we see, it's a trailer for the film, uh, we see somebody who's about to essentially be executed. How do you make decisions about what you're going to show there? Well, I mean, in the film, in the trailer, we didn't show it. In the film, we did show it. Um, I mean, there was an awful lot of, of those kind of decisions. I, I mean, it was a slightly odd film to make in the sense that I w wasn't there filming this mm. stuff. I was working the stuff that w we'd been given and was spending months sitting in a sub-basement in uh, ITN, uh, ITN Productions, just watching hours and hours and hours and hours of this footage. <coughs> and there's... A, there's you don't become desensitized to it, actually. You, it, it, the, and this is a well-known kind of established fact now, in also in terms of when you go to war zones and you become traumatized, is that tr you don't become desensitized. You think you're being desensitized. You're actually building up a, a legacy of, of you know, trauma. Now, obviously, I'm just watching it. So for me, it wasn't, you know, you just, you're conscious of the fact you're just watching it, and these people were living through it. So that you, you, can't, you can't sort of, you know, um, <coughs> feel uh, sorry for yourself. Um, but in terms of what you can show, I mean, there were things that, w the stuff we showed in the film, which is far worse than in the trailer, obviously, wasn't the worst of it. So there were decisions about things that are just, just so awful that, that yeah, you, you couldn't show them. But <coughs> I think the, the there were some very interesting decisions that had to be made uh, about what you could show and, and how you bring home to people, <coughs> and the horror of what you're watching, and the really bizarre decisions. Actually, one of the one of the kind of we were talking about this earlier at lunch. <coughs> that uh, one of the sort of 
there are no rules, really. Um, when we first made the film, uh, which we showed on television, and we had these, uh, there was these horrible images of, of women who'd been raped and then executed, and they were naked. And on, on Channel 4, I said, I, I took the decision. I mean, I, I, I don't know what people will think about this, and I don't really even kind of quite understand why I took the decisions I did. But I said, right, I'm going to um, blur the genitals, but not the breasts, because I, <coughs> um, I don't want to sanitize it. And, so the, the, and then I thought, well, when we make the feature, I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to sanitize it at all, because people have paid their money. They know what they're coming to. It's, you know, you're not going to accidentally have kids watching it. Um, so I'm not going to blur it at all. And then uh, as we made the film, and I became, I, I wanted the, the premiere to be in India, uh, because it was the nearest we could get to Sri Lanka. Um, and, uh, and, I, and then I suddenly started thinking, well, actually, I don't want, I, I suddenly started thinking my audience. And I said, I, I, can't, um, I can't show, if I actually show the full horror of it by showing them completely naked and un, un, unblurred, then actually the cultural um, triggers of the audience will prevent them, it won't actually help them understand the horror, it'll prevent them from understanding it because they'll just be so sort of viscerally shocked at the image rather than the meaning of it all. And so in the end, funnily enough, I, I ended up blurring um, both the genitals and the breasts. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, there's a, there's a, these kind of moral dilemmas, are, there's no rules for them. And I, no don't, book, I don't know there? if I did the right thing, yeah. um, but that was the kind of thought process I went through. Are there, are, are there any particular stories where you feel maybe you would do it differently now, years later? Uh, probably I've wiped them. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I'm... I'm um, Sometimes it's a, it's a question of just knowing that there was another way of doing it, not necessarily... Yes, I mean, I, I think what happens is that as you do it more and more, you do kind of work out, even if it's, again, sort of visceral rather than, than, than codified mm. system mm. of deciding what's okay and what isn't. Those and, guidelines and it, only get you so far. Don't yeah, and, it, and it's a balance between who your audience is, who's going to see it, uh, your duty to, to the relatives of the, of the, to the survivors, uh, or to, you know, uh, you know. So there's a whole balance of stuff. And actually, uh, there, there, there can't really be rules, actually, mm -hmm. I don't think. Does, does it change when, you know, for example, the um, film that um, I made for S4 Scene, GoPro with uh, South Korea back in 2015 was um, Tears of Blood. And it was about um, a prisoner of war, included a prisoner of war who had been, uh, Mr. Yu, who had been in uh, you know, these aquariums of Pyongyang for 45 years before escaping to the south. And there was one point there, um, and of course it was just you know, his testimony. We didn't have anything to show other than him tell saying this. And, um, um, where he said that, you know, because they were being starved, uh, him and another man were told by someone they knew in these camps to come around to wherever this guy, you know, lived, but, uh, you know, wherever he slept and where he had his place in the camp to come around because he had food. And when they turned up there, they were actually eating the remnants of his daughter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we were thinking about it. Well, if we put this in, I, I think we did put it in, in the end. I mean, are people actually going to believe this? Or, you know, because, you know, obviously we didn't have anything to show. In the end, we thought, you know, what, what Mr. Yu was saying was perfectly believable when we put it in. But there was this sort of um, dilemma of, um, you know, is, is the bar of what, you know, the audience will believe in pure testimony here, too, you know, too high. Um, but uh, 
but we left it in, and it was, you know, it was. I think, yeah, it was through, and it was accepted. And the, and the life of uh, the programs that you make yeah. is much longer and more diverse than it was ten years ago, where yeah. you were literally making a program for a slot mostly, yeah, one yeah, slot which yeah. might be repeated. Yeah. I mean, that changes so much of this in terms of how it will be perceived yeah. three months down the line. Yeah, you know, it's just mm. kind of meaningless now. Yeah. And that used to be what defined what we could do uh, mm. all the time. You said, what am I post-watershed or, 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 mm. or pre-watershed? Um, and I think the, the, the other, just thinking back on it, of course, the, the, the particularly horrible scenes that I didn't put into No Fire Zone, into any of the versions, were for the same reason, actually, it, it's, it, the images were so horrible that you would completely forget the, the message you're trying mm. to give and the truth you're trying to tell, you, you would just be overwhelmed by the image. Um, and that, so, so, and of course, so what, it does come back to, actually, I'm now thinking about it, it does come back to what you do is you do it for your audience. It's, you, you work out who your audience is and, and how they're going to react, and then you, in a way, um, tailor the, the, the film and the images and the way you tell that story to your audience. And of course, that's more and more difficult because your mm. audience is now... Could be so disparate yeah. and so international. Nicole, that, that, that clip there, uh, I found in many ways every bit as shocking as something extremely graphic. I mean, that, that man's fairly calm account of how he murdered his girlfriend is deeply shocking and disturbing. What, what kind of considerations did you go through when, when showing that? I mean, what were, you, what were you having to think about? He didn't kill her, she survived. Oh, so, no, 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 I mean, you wouldn't know from the clip the mm. way that he's talking. Uh, so obviously we had to go and find her and tell her. Um, it's difficult because you, you want to convey on the one hand the seriousness of what these men have done. And you also want to convey that although shots when you film it looks, it's a very static environment and it feels quite sterile. Mm. Uh, what you, what's very difficult to convey visually is the very menacing air that is just there all the time when, when you're in the prison. Um, and so you had to hear a bit about what those men had done. The difficulty is that he's utterly apolog apologetic, even though he says he, he's sorry at the end. <laughs> um, and, you know, so, so as, as, a, as a program maker, do you censor that because it's so unpalatable? Do you have a responsibility to censor it because his former girlfriend will watch that mm -hmm. or could watch that and people she knows will watch that? Um, and I think, you know, what you asked me originally about access and, and, and coming from a current affairs background, what I find, found difficult was if you've talked your way into a place and then you see something you don't like, do you just kind of hold your nose and pretend that you haven't seen it so that you can carry on? You know, or do you just show the difficult things as well as the more straightforward things? And because we did film with a lot of people who genuinely were apologetic and talked about it, it, it didn't feel right to censor the people who didn't, and you know, mm. the people who, who, who bragged. That, that is, that is the, the atmosphere inside that prison. Mm. Mm. It, it's a very threatening place, even though it, it feels quite sterile visually. Um, and in the context of that film, you know, th th there weren't many clips like that. You, d you did get a kind of sense of what the purpose of prison was and, and what people thought over time about what they'd done. Mm. But it did feel wrong to leave out that element. Mm. Okay, I'm going to open it up to questions. Can we have the lights up so I can see people? Anyone? 
Put your hand up if you want to say anything. Just right down here. Uh, man in a grey jumper, I think. Can we have the lights down a bit? Uh, uh, house lights up, please, <laughs> so we can see. Thanks. Hi. Um, I have a question for, for Callum and maybe for any of you who uh, used reenactments as part of kind of a, a, as a storytelling device. How difficult is it once you've made the choice to use reenactments as part of it to stick to what you, what the facts are or, you know, how difficult is it to, to kind of to, to make sure that it's as, as exact as possible and not to kind of stray into making things look better for the screen? Hmm. Well, I mean, in, in Ballon Murphy, um, the, the, there was a whole lot of factors came together in, in, in what we did, um, which was that, that um, A, we needed to show what happened, so it had to be forensically accurate. B, it had to not be, because this is, you know, I'm very conscious the first people to see this film were going to be the relatives, um, and, and I, you know, I was not going to have blood and gore everywhere. Um, uh, watch, you know, depictions of, of your, your mother dying, being shot, you know, in the face. Um, I, I, and... Um, but, but it also had to sort of um, be chilling because <laughs> you had to understand how awful it was. Uh, and, and in fact, in the end, the solution, the, the, well, actually, in the end, it was almost the very first thing before we made the film that I, when I was thinking about this dilemma before we started filming, um, I mean, after I'd met the relatives and spoken to them, when I was trying to think, how do we solve this problem? And actually, in the end, what I decided was that an audience today is very, very used to seeing drone shots of, you know, somebody in ISIS being taken out. Um, and it's clinical. It's, it's sort of from above. It's clinical. You're kind of remote. Um, but it's also always really chilling because you know it's a real person. But there's also a sort of assumption on the part of those who film it and generally on the assumption of those who show it that you're on the side of the drone, as it were, and that these are bad people. Um, yeah. And I thought that if I could somehow... Uh, yeah, I had an additional problems, which is to read, read the, the areas where these people were shot and where they were shot and where the geography of and where the houses were and where the army were. It's all very, very important. Of course, it all changed. So what we did in the end was I said, I'm going to try and do what a drone shot would have looked like in 1971 if, if that technology had existed. So we, we filmed with a drone the areas today. We took out all the new buildings, put back the original buildings, and then on a green screen we filmed exactly what happened from testimony, from eyewitness, and from um, all, sorts of, all the massive evidence that we'd gathered. Um, and we got um, actors to play the part. And then we put them into the drone shot, uh, filmed from above. Uh, and then we treated it to look like 70s TV. And, and, um, and it, I, I think it really did work. I mean, it was, it, was, it was very chilling to watch because the commentary and your explanation, you're being told what's happening, but you're being told by, uh, you know, the, 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 the families of the people who died. So it's their voice that you're hearing, but you're watching it on this sort of, you know, thing. So it, 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 I, think it, I think it did work. It was very, very chilling. It was forensic. The relatives all were happy with it. Uh, not happy, that's completely the wrong word, but they were all, you know, thought that it did what had to be done. Yeah. So that was, that was the decision on that. But it was, that wasn't typical... You know, I knew that what I couldn't do was typical reconstruction where you have, you know, slow-mo shots and people falling over. And we did a little bit of that, but in a very, very clinical sort of way. But the, the key events and all the actual deaths, we did a bit of the bodies on the ground on the ground, but all the actual death was done that way. Any more questions? No, I don't see any. And just, just one last one from... Oh, is the one over there? Yep. 
Great. Hi there. Uh, having written some music as a composer for documentaries about war, and um, particularly uh, sequences of death in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, personally over the years I've felt uh, quite uncomfortable about having Hollywood-ized uh, footage of death, and, and I wanted to know what your thoughts are on that uh, front. Absolutely, one of the first, one of the dilemmas all the way through, I mean, you know, and especially when it wasn't even footage I'd filmed, when it was the, the Sri Lanka stuff. I, I had real, that was one of my four o'clock in the morning uh, moments of anxiousness. I'm putting an orchestral score to execution movies and to, to real people dying. And I, I, it was, yeah, it was, it was really, I kind of felt really, I mean, in the end, I think we were absolutely right to do it. It's just, it made the film, it was a big part of the film, actually, the music. Um, it was very good music. Um, it was specially composed and, and, and you know, I, I actually do completely defend it, but, to, but I was terrified. I was really, well, exactly the same dilemma. Really, I was like, what are you doing? Putting an orchestral mm -hmm. score to, to, to real people being killed in front of the screen, you know? I mean, what we did do is we didn't, we didn't do any sound effects. Uh, we had, the sound was always pretty rubbish uh, because obviously it's, it, it all been filmed on, on um, uh, little, little cameras and phones and then sent out by sat phones. So it was all very compressed and hugely pixelated, the material we got, and then we're going to show it on a big screen. Um, and what we, we, we're not going to put sound effects. Where, where the, occasionally some of the uh, tracks were mute, and so if we, we, used, we stole audio from some of the other ones, that, which was consistent with it. So we, didn't, we never had mute, but we didn't, there was no sound effects in, in terms of the stuff on the ground. There was a couple of aerial shots that we put sound effects on. But, so we were, we were very religiously careful to, to, to not um, mess around with the sound. Um, but the orchestra, I worried about it. We did it, and I think it worked. Uh, mm. you know. Graham, do you have any thoughts on that, how, how music can be used in these contexts? <sighs> No, not really. Um, it, it's, it's not something that I, you know, on, on Bally Murphy we had, um, you know, I think we used the same composer that you used on um, a No Fire Zone, Wayne Dobbert, and um, it's, you know, a Welshman, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's his music, um, uh, but, um, it makes a huge difference to the, you know, to the viewer experience, doesn't it? You know, especially when you're watching something that's genuinely harrowing, or you know, mm -hmm. has genuine effect on you. And in, in, in the programs that I've done, and it, it's something that I've been particularly not particularly comfortable because I'm, I'm not a, you know, I tend to listen to other people's views on that. I'm one of the few people in Wales who has no musical. Sense whatsoever, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's something that I tend to shy away from. You take advice. <laughs> I, t I listen to other people. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, all it remains to me to say is that I, I do think this panel and their discussion, in, in a sense, underlines the whole point about this being that you know, ethics and how we make these difficult decisions are not just an adjunct; they're absolutely part and parcel of the quality of the programme that comes out of it. Thank you all very much indeed.